0: Riech Und Ehre, was ich dir noch angesäche. So bist du sie alle Ehre. Was ist? Wohl
1: The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Dan Baltic.
2: And this is Matt Pegas.
1: And this is our top ten episode, as all podcasts have as they're approaching the new year and, you know, getting lazy and running out of content. Yeah. That's... Right. Um, But we, crucially, have produced a lot of really good content this past six months or so. And this gives us a chance to revisit our top ten things that we have read this year.
2: Right. It's our... uh, You know, originally when, uh, when we talked about doing this, there was a notion of like... Are we going to do a top ten books of twenty twenty one thing? I, I will be totally above board here. I probably have not read. I, 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 unlike the most of the population, I have read ten plus books this year, but I've absolutely not read ten books that were published in twenty twenty one.
1: One hundred percent not. Yeah, you know, uh, we, I mean, you know we, we've read all, ten yeah. books, but. Those books have been published in many different years, right. and you know it's good that we've even read ten books. As we say, is, most people don't.
2: <laughs> it is good, and you know we're you know we're not a we're not we're not a fully funded uh, operation here. We don't have a stack of uh, of what's the word review copies on our desk. If that were the case, then maybe we could whip out such a list. Maybe in years future we'll have such a list, but for now this is our top ten slash year in review uh the first well i could i would say the first year of new right but it's actually the first it's not even we, we haven't even hit the six month mark yet
1: that's um, crazy it feels it like crazy, we've actually. done like yeah. a year of work frankly
2: it does it does we've we've definitely put a lot of work into this podcast this year but yeah, uh, but within those first six episode months, august
1: yeah. we've, we've only been doing this for like Four and a half months at this point.
2: For like four and a half months. I think this is... Is this even episode 10? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm proud of yeah, what we've done. Ten. We'll talk about this it. This is
1: episode 10. All
2: right. It's a good... Perhaps a good number to end on. Although, actually, not... The, the audience doesn't need to hear this, and maybe I'll edit it out, but we may be, we may end up posting this as episode 11.
1: Oh, correct. <laughs> yeah. No, that's <laughs> but true. anyway. Anyway. This um, is the stocking stuffer episode. This...
2: Yes. The, um, if all for... goes according to plan, this will be dropped... I don't know, December twenty seventh, December twenty eighth, something in that uh, department.
1: For all the good little boys and girls of New Right.
2: <laughs> yes, you gotta, you gotta whip out the metaphors <laughs> for this season. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Do you want to start getting into the list, or do you want to? We could maybe, maybe we could talk a, a, just a tiny little rehash of. Um, I guess this will go along with the list, but basically. How this podcast came to be, and, and yeah, yeah,
1: good. Yeah,
2: um, I, I will go along with the list in many ways, and we can kind of do it seamlessly. But basically, the story is uh, Dan and I met on Justin Murphy's forum, and see, even that wasn't exactly the beginning of the year. It was like March of this year, true, and yeah. developed a virtual uh, friendship uh, over a shared interest in fiction and writing and publishing, and the sense. That the type of work we were doing it was not going to find a home in anything remotely mainstream or in the anything, frankly, anything lucrative industry. in the traditional publishing industry. And uh, New Right was uh, basically the product of uh, a long email exchange, and um, I will credit Dan with the idea. He oh, asked me one you, day Matt. if we should start a podcast, and my first reaction was that uh, you know every everyone. Everyone starts podcasts. I don't. Does the world I need another one? Which I think may or may not be a theme of one of the items on our uh, list for 2021 that we'll get to. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm glad we started it. It's been a really incredible creative outlet for me. And as with anything else creative, uh, you don't really worry so much about are there too many podcasts out there, or even if there's all that many people listening. What you worry about is, do you get something out of doing it? And I can very much say that I've gotten a ton out of doing every episode we've done. I've learned a lot, uh, as we kind of talked about in the Kevin Kautzman episode. uh, You know, the whole social dimension of art and of writing, uh, this podcast has really become that for me. And I hope to grow in the new year. I hope that we... Uh, you know some of my, one of my favorite podcasts, the perfume nationalist, <laughs> one of the most successful podcasts from our sphere is very much a network of people and you know we, we I think at this point New right has a small compact group of people that are following it that are you know posting and tweeting So many of whom are former guests, but nevertheless that's how it starts. And I hope we can um, grow that network and, and be and kind of lean more into that social element. 100%.
1: And yeah, this, um, you know, even if no one were listening, this isn't just, you know, like a great outlet just talking about this shit because like, well, I mean, you're a little more plugged into, uh, this, uh, corner of the internet or or were a little more plugged in than I was when we met. And like, frankly, I was losing my mind not being able to have these conversations, you know, with anyone because, you know, in the normie sphere of, you know, uh, probably the world reality mm-hmm. you can't talk about this stuff and um yeah so it's just like it's a great outlet to uh you know talk about this with you and to you know talk and to crucially share it with our uh our dear listeners
2: right and again i i reiterate as with great writing as with a lot of the writing that we explore here on this podcast it's all about you know finding stuff that's honest and truthful not necessarily pleasant all the time but uh you know talking about these important realities and yeah the goal is always if if you feel this need to express it uh then that is in, in, in and of itself uh in writing as in podcasting i would say
1: <laughs> absolutely uh oh and uh, you mentioned that um The initial idea for the pod was broached by me, but I would remiss if I did not say we would not have a pod without Matt here who knows how to edit audio. (laughs) Among other, uh, among other excellent traits that Matt has, such as uh, you know, uh, diligence and making sure this gets done and happens.
2: Thank you. I mean, I can't, I can't claim any real genius at audio editing, as unfortunately, I'm sure many (laughs) hecklers would love to point out.
1: Um, It could be worse. It could be worse.
2: Look, uh, you know, I, I think I, I have a basic understanding of how to, you know, splice audio tracks together. So that, that served us well. Also, I'll just go ahead and throw this out. Maybe this will be in motion if we post this later this month as opposed to like tomorrow, which is the plan, you know, to post at the end of the month. Um, New Right should be coming to Spotify and wherever the fuck else people get podcasts. I don't really use many of those platforms. But anyway, I'm, we're probably going to invest in some kind of RSS feed. So, uh, we should be expanding our reach
1: soon to your favorite pod catcher. As the saying goes
2: to your, who's, I don't know who says that, but I like it. Uh, it's to your favorite is pod catcher or whatever, one of
1: these, you, know. you know, like I, I feel like with every pod, they're like, you know, you'll find it on your favorite pod catcher. So that, that makes uh,
2: sense. Given the way that I'm again, learning the way that RSS feeds work, uh, that kind of catches it, so to speak. So that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, hopefully we'll be expanding in in every in every way in the new year.
1: We're uh, we're getting big as uh, they say online. you gotta get big in 2021, 2022 to uh, to survive the uh, the coming years. get big, get strong, eat raw meat.
2: Yes. Eat and that meat, brings eat. us to yes, our
1: first uh, entry on the list of the top ten things we've read this year. And, uh, that would be, uh, Mr. Michael Ma and his two books, Harassment Architecture and Gothic Violence.
2: Yes. It's a little two in one. Uh, we should add, you know, these are in no particular order. This is neither number one or 10 and we're just listing off sort of 10, ten items or 10, uh, yeah, but you know, 10 talking points, some of which contain multiple books. In this case, <clears throat> two Gothic Violence, which did come out in 2021, and Harassment harassment Architecture, which came out in 2019. And this was selected as our first episode of New Right. Um, what was the criteria? I don't remember, but it was a good choice, <laughs> I would say. Because Mike Ma is um, definitely one of the more exciting voices on, uh, in, uh, for lack of a better term, the dissident literary sphere. And, uh, I mean... Yeah, reading... Honestly, I don't even know if this is a good thing or something I should admit, but reading those books, you know, change, changed, changed my outlook, uh, if not my life. Um, I, I am not a subscriber to the... I mean, yeah, as we talked about on the show, I don't exactly know what, what Mike Ma um, stands for in every instance. Uh, I'm not co-signing on all of it, but kind of like when I read... Bronze Age Mindset way back when and other of these sort of red pill books. Uh, Yeah, definitely Mike Ma's sort of aesthetic vision and his, again, for lack of a better term, sort of philosophical vision um, really has been a a major influence on me um, these past six months.
1: Yeah, yeah. So just to do like a recap of what the books are, like you, uh, in case you haven't listened to her pod or, you know, are not familiar. So, um, they are kind of a semi first person, uh, novelizations of, um, a sort of, I guess like trad eco terrorist mm-hmm. philosopher. I, maybe that's a, you know, I think that is a catch-all type of phrase, but I think that grabs a lot of what Ma is about, and um, yeah, just here how you you cross Patrick Bateman with um, Timothy McVeigh with like you know I don't know your uh, your local uh, bodybuilder
2: right and with that I guess
1: yeah with yeah. that there we go and um, it's funny. It's um, it has some really good satire. It's uh, and also very um, you know there's a reason why he's so popular, and I you know part of the reason is he's uh, he's got a good style. It's very stylized. Right. It's very um, like you know in the back of harassment architecture. He has those campaign poster mm-hmm. art, which is just like very like Gonzo out there uh totally
2: i mean what one one when i think mike ma i think you know it's it's a great example of how in literature and in i don't know wet internet use (laughs) (laughs) style matters a lot you know because i say that these books influence me on a philosophical level. it's hard for me to even parse what i mean by that i think what i mean more is that just stylistically um, they're a huge source of inspiration and frankly joy <laughs> i don't know if that is the most common reaction because they're somewhat dark books in certain regards but uh you know reading these books is really exciting and, and the whole uh, style and charisma that kind of goes along with mike ma um is something to aspire to uh case in point i guess i'm I mentioned on the podcast that he has this massive Spotify playlist, which for someone like Mike, someone controversial like Mike Ma, it's kind of arrestingly like these are just like good kind of pop and like emo rock songs. And I still listen to that pod. I still listen to that playlist like um, almost every day. I I don't know. It's a a weird, it's, it's just a strange thing. And it may seem extraneous to, to, to mention that, but I don't know, you know, style matters, music matters, the, 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 you know, the way that that can go along with literature and sort of create a state of mind. Um, yeah, in, in many ways, since we read these books in July, August, uh, I think when I look back on 2021 and years of the future, I'll be like, oh yeah, that was when I was like really into Mike Ma. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, that um, it was the these yes the white boy summer, and right, uh, wh- right. who who is you know a bigger white boy than Mike Ma? For so. sure.
2: So yeah, that's I guess that's the feather we can put in in this cap is uh, you know Gothic violence was the book of the white boy summer. <laughs>
1: Now moving to uh, another white boy. <laughs> uh, our, boy our I think teams. all of our
2: I think all of our people might be white boys. Is this a problem?
1: Oh fuck, we're gonna get canceled. <laughs> Damn, Matt, it's been yeah. a good run. I <laughs> I think uh, I think we're done. <laughs>
2: we got a couple of Jews on the list, so we're good.
1: <laughs> That's true. We do. Uh, will one and yeah. Maybe,
2: but we can get into that later. Anyway,
1: so uh, our next one is Hartiste. and uh, Hartiste, the godfather of uh, you know game. The godfather of game. It's a great mm-hmm. you know title right there. He uh, the reason why we picked him is we wanted to do uh, an episode the Manosphere to Literature pipeline. And uh, no one really, in, in my opinion, our opinion, I think, in the early days of writing about game, did it with the style and the uh, flair of Hartiste, uh, who uh, was called Royce, and he um, supposedly, uh, in, you know, apocryphally, in, in the context of his writings, lived in the Chateau Hartiste and right. he then took on the name Hartiste. So people just call him Hartiste, and that's what we're going to call him. And, uh, yeah, he writes about picking up women in a way that is um, masterful, and it transcends the mechanics of it and gets into the philosophical underpinings and gets into a, a lot of, you know, what makes uh, men men, women women, and, um, you know, you see glimmers in it of the problems of today. It's crucial this was written in 2010, but um, he's, you know, very clearly identified um, hypergamy as a big issue, and his, you know, book is How to Take Advantage of Hypergamy to, you know, to Mm -hmm. to use it so you can, you know, be a successful authorio. And, um, I mean, I think... You know, we, we can see how in the 10 years uh, since then, uh, not just hypergamy, but other aspects of society that dovetail with that have kind of uh, exacerbated and were, you know, uh, kind of in some respects, uh, you know, in a uh, not excellent position. So um, that is kind of, he diagnoses the problem 10 years ago. And uh, and indeed, as we've mentioned on that pod, he comes to some, eventually, to some solutions of his own, which was not in the writing that we read, nor do we support.
2: Right, right. Um, The disavowal with East, of course, kind of going off the rails. But um, as as you mentioned, he, you know, diagnoses, uh, or I don't want to say diagnose, because that's to imply... Uh, you know, a cure or, or whatever, which again was not so much the focus of what we what we read. What we read was um, how how best uh, to take advantage of the sexual marketplace as it was in, in 2010 or so. And when I think of Partiste, um, you know, he's I, he's he's one of these writers. I, I, it's tempting to use the red pill metaphor because uh, because it's illustrative here. But I don't even just mean sort of right-wing types, although certainly this is endemic uh, to uh, writers in our sphere. Um, You know, I'd put him up there with, well, obviously Bap but also Camille Paglia uh, with Nietzsche. I'd even you know, make that stretch back to uh, you know, back in history. Um, He's one of these writers that it doesn't so much matter what they're writing about, you know, Nietzsche was a philosopher writing about philosophy and Greek culture. Camille Paglia wrote about you know Western art from the Renaissance to today. And Bap is you know a right wing bodybuilder. And heart wrote about <laughs> picking up women. Um, and all of these topics are different, but uh, but the over, it's just this incredibly r- red pilling for lack of a better term process where uh, you you know you read these people's writings and just there's a truth sometimes a brutal truth uh imbued in every word and it's evident that you are dealing with a visionary someone who sees things as they are unadorned and maybe their conclusions are not always correct or what we'd like to think um but that basic visionary quality um is evident on every page and i mean these are some of my favorite writers to read
1: agreed agreed Moving on to um, another, uh, well, another two visionaries. This, uh, this uh, we're, we're pairing these essays together because that's how we did it when we did the pod on them. And uh, yeah, they, they both wrote essays that uh, were visionary and predicted uh, the future in, in some respects. One essay, The Flight 93 Election by Michael Anton, and the other, by Victus, by Curtis Yarvin, Menchies, Smoke Bug, and um, Flight 93 Election. It, um, well, just on the level of literature, I, I think we both agree. Anton is an excellent writer, and he has a real command over, like, the Flight 93 Election. What a metaphor! What and that is like you know this when he wrote this, he wrote it from an anonymous internet account. And okay, I think it was published by the Claremont Review of Books. But okay, back then and it was right before the twenty sixteen election. No one had even really heard of the Claremont Review of Books. Yeah, this made its way into the culture because he called it the Flight ninety three Election, and that was a stroke of genius. And right and it was yeah,
2: yeah no i, I always love this factoid uh i mean this can be a little in memoriam end of the year thing too i mean i i love this factoid that uh that the flight 93 election was read aloud on the rush limbaugh show um you know so to a massive normie boomercon audience and you know as far as political essays go it's excellent and You know, I enjoy a lot of kind of further down the rabbit hole type of political speculation that goes on on our corner of the internet. But at the end of the day, and this is really something that I've come even you know to realize even more perhaps over this past year, perhaps over the past couple of years, is that at the end of the day, um, you know, it's not all about these sort of big-brained political autistic ideologies. You really you have to to reach out and build coalition with, uh, you know, that basic American demographic. uh, Call them boomer cons, if you will. Many of them are, but we might also call them the Americaner. Um, The Trump coalition, in short. And, you know, Michael Anton, and even to an extent Yarvin, I'll give him credit, you know, um, are are very good. Well, Yarvin's a little more complicated, I guess. But nevertheless, uh, you know, seem to be very much aware of that, that that is the political audience that is the, you know, that demographic is the source of political power.
1: Exactly. And um, boy, did Anton help move the uh, the needle and help wield that power because this was a touchstone and, like, lines like um, comparing the election of Trump to uh, playing Russian roulette to the election a potential election of a president Hillary Clinton to play in Russian roulette with a semi-auto that was yeah. just such a, a brilliant metaphor it just you know sticks in your mind immediately and you know it's it's hilarious because of course that's not even possible to you know mm-hmm. play a roulette with a semi-auto you just blow your brains out and uh, you know that um, you know it hammered it home so to say and, um, Yarvin obviously has a somewhat different style, a little, uh, more, as I think you've said, uh, Matt big brained, a little more, uh, very online, but, um, even so, um, yeah, still, uh, you know, speaks plainly truthfully and, uh, you know, frankly, in the wake of the 2020, uh, election, there, there were not that many, you know, pieces about the uh, legitimacy of that election, and uh, there, you know, for very good reason, the media won't won't touch it, and um, you know, the you know, there just isn't that much alternative uh, alternative voices out there, right? And so Yarvin is one of them, and I think he wrote, you know, a, a very Prescient, um cap portrait of what happened and uh, you know essentially and it's the same thing I've I said to you on the pod and I think I said to you before the pod you know you'll you'll never really know and politics is dirty and you know frankly it's always gonna be very close from now on because the country is so evenly divided and the one who cheats better is gonna win and mm-hmm. the, the best cheater is is in some respects the legitimate president because if you're the better cheater, you're more powerful.
2: Right. No, I mean, Yarvin is another one of these writers who, you know, you will learn, you will get smarter from reading because he has a certain view of things which, you know, is unadorned and unsentimental and, um, you know, takes a look at things... And is willing to face those hard truths like that there's always, um, you know, fuckery going on under the surface, so to speak. Um, no, Flight... Uh, no, sorry. Um, Vivictus uh, was a great read, and the reason we did that show this year and the reason why, even though, I suppose, technically neither of those essays came out in 2021, uh, Vivictus must have been released about a year ago, uh, perhaps today, uh, we're recording this on the 15th. Uh, yeah, it's in that general vicinity. Um... You know, these two essays have been read together, you know, they form these bookends to the Trump presidency and the moment right after the Trump presidency when you can look back and, you know, the owl of Minerva moment, so to speak, with the Trump presidency. That's a very 2021 thing, because, of course, we had January 6th of this year and then, you know, Trump's ouster and then Biden uh, coming into power and that just kind of being this steady downward <laughs> slope in so many ways, Um, you know that that really defines twenty twenty one. We're still, I don't know, I can't speak for twenty twenty two, but as, as far as twenty twenty one is concerned, we were still in that moment just after Trump, and so a a fine time to read uh, those two bookends as we did.
1: Absolutely. And uh, I mean, you should read it over holiday. It's they're still very important. They still uh, will help you, um, you know, understand things. And I think the next person on our list wrote a book about helping people understand something very complicated.
2: Yes, uh, very complicated indeed. Uh, this one's a this one's a me item. I don't think uh, Dan has read the book yet. Yeah, uh, not yet. Be. The goal I've, is to. The goal is to get Michael Millerman, uh, the writer of this next book, uh, perhaps on the podcast. So maybe leading up to it. But also, you know, it's not this one's not a book for everyone. It's it's philosophy, um, and rather dense philosophy of that. Uh, next item uh, is beginning with Heidegger uh, by Michael Millerman. Uh, Michael is uh, a uh, Canadian-based um, former, you know, a PhD uh, in political science um, who. Uh, beginning with Heidegger is basically the published form of his dissertation, published by Arctos, uh, late 2020. I I read it at the very beginning of this year. I think I literally read it on my plane trip back from the holiday in 2020 for Christmas in 2020. Uh, oh, wow. So it, yeah, very much a top of the year item for me. Uh, I've taken a couple of courses with Michael Millerman. Uh, the last one was at the beginning of this year with um, through Justin Murphy's uh, through Justin Murphy's company, Other Life Co, uh, which is also ties into to meeting Dan and starting this podcast because um, that's the reason I was on Justin Murphy's forum in the first place was as a as a place to talk about this course that I was taking actually not on Heidegger but on Leo Strauss. Um, anyway, to to summarize the book. Beginning with Heidegger, um, again Michael Millerman's dissertation, published form from Arctos, uh, deals with the influence of Martin Heidegger, uh, who is a uh, you know philosopher that I, like many people in our sphere, have been interested in for some time. Really complicated, uh, and in in, in many ways you might say dense philosopher, um, though I think deceptively so. I think once you really delve into his thought uh maybe it's not as complicated and strange as it seems and uh, no one better to introduce you to it perhaps than than michael millerman in this book and he he summarizes um heidegger's views uh in general but all but more so uh talks about their influence on um richard rorty Leo Strauss, uh, Jacques Derrida—these uh, basically philosophers from across the spectrum, uh, since the time of Heidegger, since the early 20th century—how uh, these various philosophers, one of them, uh, Rorty being a, you know, an American liberal philosopher, uh, Jacques Derrida being, you know, a post-structuralist leftist, Leo Strauss being the godfather of neoconservatism, so to speak—all um, took either influenced from Heidegger or had to pass through the thought of Heidegger. Uh, And it's a very compellingly laid out um, essay. Uh, And again, not necessarily for everyone, uh, but if you are interested in understanding Martin Heidegger's uh, philosophy more, and uh, it's something that I would advocate as someone interested in philosophy, um, then beginning with Heidegger by Michael Millerman... Uh, is a very good book for you uh, I left one name off of the list of philosophers that beginning with Heidegger covers uh, which is Alexander Dugan uh, yeah. the Russian um, I'll just call him a Russian philosopher because I don't necessarily believe that he's a fascist as he's accused of being um, and I, I didn't leave that off on purpose but it's, it's fitting to end talking a little bit about Dugan because uh, Dugan is also uh, there's another philosopher of a lot of interest to me, and another philosopher of a lot of interest to Michael, uh, and someone he's translated. It was, he's pretty much the, uh, the primary translator of uh, Alexander Dugan into English, I guess, uh, as, lo- as well as uh, Richard Spencer's ex-wife, uh, Nina Capronova. <laughs> I, I beto- I, I I'm not sure if there's been any other translations except by Michael Millerman and Richard Spencer's ex-wife of Dugan into English on any kind of extensive basis. Uh, I could go on. Um, I hope we get Michael Millerman on this show and that we can go more into this. But basically, the reason why Millerman, uh, who is a very, very nice guy, you know, he has a family, he's not he, he's not what you'd think of as a dissident per se, and he's certainly not an extremist, um, but he was effectively cancelled from academia uh, for his interest in Alexander Dugan um, and had to publish his book with Arctos, which, I you know, I, I like Arctos quite a bit. I'm not trying to slander their name in any way. But obviously Arctos is fairly right-wing publishing outfit. Um, but that is the only place that would take Michael's work. Um, what were you going to say? Again? So, Sorry. Like, <laughs>
1: uh, like many, I uh, or maybe not like many, but I did read Heidegger in college. Don't remember virtually any of it. So... I am a prime customer of uh, Michael's here, and uh, yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to digging into beginning with Heidegger so I can, um, you know, remember what I, I once knew.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's the boat that I was in. Uh, you know, I was long into Heidegger, and I kind of a few years after college have just been like, oh, Heidegger. Like, I don't really remember what any of that was about. And then one day, it kind of hit me like. It would actually be good to, to know what that was about, and uh, and between that and and kind of reading some of Michael most largely Michael Millerman is is kind of the person I've been reading about, you know, on Heidegger, uh, and as well as I actually took a course with Michael on um, some of Heidegger's work that uh, in 2020 into the beginning of this year um, brought me to a point where you know I feel like I have some idea of what Heidegger was saying, however, this is all about nine months in the past, so I've probably forgotten it all again, and will need to be reminded. But we can, we can move to the next item, uh, which I guess I can just get right into if it sounds good, because this is another one that I put on the list, and another one that I read around this same period of time when I was taking a class with Michael Millerman through Justin Murphy's company, which is Justin Murphy's Based Luz. Have you read any of his book, Dan?
1: I have not, but uh, it is also on my list, like Michael's, and um, yeah, I've, uh, I've heard that it's pretty good.
2: It is pretty good. us is a quick, relatively quick read, Qu- quicker than beginning with Heidegger, I would say. <laughs> um, and it's a really creative uh, take on the manner in which the thought of, you know, a philosopher as ex- as Ostensibly leftist, as um, as Gilles Deleuze, uh, actually has quite a bit of resonance um, with, for lack of a better term, the base and the base sphere in our corner of Twitter. And um, in Deleuzian form, it is not a sort of analytical philosophy, premises conclusion argument. It is a rhizomic, <laughs> you know, um, like like a mushroom. Like a colony of mushrooms, type of book, which deals with different topics uh, one by one, and there's a lot of just gems of of wisdom uh, the one within within Deleuze's work, evidently, uh, but also within within Justin's book. Um, the the one that I remember perhaps most particularly and that affected me the most on an existential level being, uh, eh, this is going to sound obnoxiously academic, but. Justin Murphy's reading of Deleuze's reading of Nietzsche's uh, concept of the eternal recurrence of the same and the notion of not simply uh, rolling the dice and and, and, and always uh, loving fate, not always not simply loving fate in the sense of being a hedonist, but rather grounding one's commitments, grounding the circumstances of one's life and affirming all of it i um, not sure it's something that I could unpack in the span of this episode uh, but it had a pretty big influence on me and Justin Murphy uh, who is um, you know Justin Murphy has uh, ha- and related to that concept I just talked about Justin Murphy is known for having a um, arranged marriage service that he will <laughs> uh, he will provide to those interested as long as they're serious and um, I have not utilized that and won't but uh, you know, Dan and I are, are, are we, were, were inadvertently uh, introduced by Justin Murphy, perhaps in a similar fashion. And um, you know, this podcast, Bound is, is, Life, is the product, yeah, the product of our of our union, the union of minds, <laughs> which uh, you know, I don't. Justin Murphy's probably busy, but
1: he
2: uh, he should know he's responsible for New Right on a profound level.
1: It, uh, I'm sure will bring him great joy. And, uh, we would love to have you on the, the podcast sometime. So, uh, yeah, let's do it. Moving on, I think, to, uh, the next one. Now, this is, um, this is a play this is so. This is not a, a book, but uh, nevertheless, plays are often uh, read as novels or in, you know, they are read as well as, you know, performed and, and observed. So, uh, Moderation by Kevin Kautzman is our next entry here. And this holds a special place in my heart because I am a fan of theater. And uh, theater, as anyone who, uh, you know, is uh, even passingly familiar with that industry can tell you, is uh, probably the wokest, uh, woke, wokest least creative uh, space among the various artistic mediums today. Anything that is the uh, slightest bit honest will be crushed under the, uh, you know, pan uh pan-grievance, pan-identity uh, boot of the, uh, you know, the American uh, B-B-G-A-E, as they say, mm-hmm. but Kevin's play is not that. Kevin uh, wrote a play that is daring, that, um, that is uh, critical of this moment in time in, uh, in a very interesting way. It's about a content moderator at a Facebook-like company that, um, he, uh, has an assistant and, uh, he forms an unlikely, uh, kind of fixation on his assistant while they both run the gauntlet of, uh, moderating content, which, uh, is essentially, uh, Kind of subjecting yourself to disturbing images all day long in a Clockwork Orange-like fashion, and uh, this serves as you know a great vehicle for exploring the uh, uh, the inhumanity of technology, the inhumanity of male-female relations today. And, um, the, uh, it's, it's a really a great exercise and something that we have to, des- well, not we have described, but we have talked about uh-huh. how Strauss has described it as writing between the lines.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, what I'll, my, i my, I think I already said quite a lot of effusive things about, um, it's a fuse of a positive word. I'm, I'm losing my word. It is. Okay, so I thought. It's. About, about moderation uh, on the show we do with Kautzman. But what I'll say now is just that it, uh, after years of not really thinking about theater, it is a play that reminded me of what theater can do. Um, it is, you know, a quite profound, uh, very simple two person show. Um, that manages to do uh, in the way as you said that explores technology and the relationship between the sexes and, and so much else uh, what you know what 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 a, a million millions and millions of dollar budget movie um, would, would you know would be able to do but in a very simple and direct way. Um, and in terms of the writing between the lines of it all, you know there too, it is a play that it doesn't wear any kind of ideology on its sleeve rather it is interested in finding the truth uh, the truths of our time uh, you know within within the details uh, and in the case of this play, uh, a lot of it revolves around uh, you know sifting through uh, you know hours and hours of heinous content online. Um, you're know, we're, we're kind of all content moderators and even though we don't all have this job that the characters in Kevin's play have um it is quite crushingly relatable and uh, another way i'd pitch it is that it's like it's like joker if like without 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 all like the gay bullshit that is kind of gets caught up with joker like it's 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 like that movie joker in terms of the way it hones in on that kind of personality but rather than some fictional, you know, war between the rich and the poor comic book setup, uh, moderation goes deep and cuts to the truth. Uh,
1: agreed, agreed. It um, it's it's similar to um, uh, Waiting for Guido in mm-hmm. you know the respect that it's two characters who are kind of both, uh, you know, waiting for some form of deliverance. And, um, you know, that's, it's, you know, really an emblematic, uh, you know, play for our time in that we are all kind of like atomized, mired in this, you know, this social moment and, uh, you know, waiting for either that promotion to get into the elite and you, you think oh, that's a concept in the play waiting for love you know, that's one of the, the concepts there, there, you know, he's trying to form a, a connection with his, uh, his employee and, um, yeah, waiting, waiting for God. And, um, mm. you know, at the, the end uh, of the play, you know, we uh we kind of uh get a glimpse into uh what that uh weight might entail. Right. And I won't say any more. But um Kevin, uh you know, he um I, I don't think anyone watching this, regard I think regardless of what side of the political aisle you're on, and chances are if you're listening to us you are in the culturally on the right side of the aisle. Uh, Which is to say the correct side of the aisle. Mm -hmm. But uh, no matter which side you are on, I think you could watch moderation and you could find something in there that you agree with. And frankly, you'll probably think that the author agrees with you too. And that's, in my opinion, the sign of a good writer. Yeah,
2: no, no, completely. uh... A challenging
1: work that can be interpreted in different ways.
2: Exactly. Uh, you know, moderation. Um, there was a Zoom sort of performance of it at the beginning of this month, at the beginning of December. It is available um, in in staged reading form, I believe, uh, to the general public. So we we'll post a link with yeah. this episode. Very much worth a watch. You know, um, there's a lot of good movies out there, obviously, but this 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 play is is worth you know spending that evening watching. Let it be your your evening's entertainment. You won't be disappointed, and Dan and I will wait in anticipation of the spiritual sequel uh, to Moderation, which uh, perhaps it will be um, Kevin's Killdozer musical.
1: Oh, yes, that would be something. something.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and I'm not even just kidding here. Like, a Killdozer musical, I think, would be the spiritual sequel to this play, and I will leave that as a breadcrumb to, you know for people to figure out what may or may not happen in moderation
1: so a world where Killdozer is possible is a a world that is um, you know not the best of all possible worlds it might be something close to hell and (laughs) that brings us to our next book which uh, is uh, Welcome to Hell by right. Bad Billy Pratt. Uh,
2: our recent interview, uh, re- recent interviewee, um, Bad Billy Pratt. Uh, Welcome to Hell. I think uh, released by that. This here, here is another book that was actually released in 2021. To its credit, uh, by Terror House Press in June of this year.
1: Um, <laughs> Welcome to Hell is. In some respects, a collection of uh, both personal essays and cultural commentary from Billy Pratt. And uh, really, we describe him in that episode as uh, Frog Twitter's Chuck Klosterman, and I think that's apt. He has a very incisive mind. He looks at, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, cultural... Uh, phenomena and um, has uh, the types of insights that, you know, frankly, you would get canceled for in the, <laughs> the mainstream. You can't write these types of, you know, cultural commentary essays. So, um, so he's our guy there. Yeah, and... definitely.
2: I mean, he's, uh, he, he's, he's frog Twitter, Chuck Klosterman meets uh, delicious tacos. Of course, the comparison is inescapable. Um, given True. sort of the way he writes about personal relationships and sex, and the general atomization and hellish nature uh, of our world, um, but yeah, no, Billy Billy Pratt was I'll say a really great discovery for me this year. Uh, his book was published the same month as my book by the same publisher, Terror House, and I always say this, uh, you know, when I when I bought that book, it made me very proud to be a Terror House alumnus as well. Um, because it's a great fucking book and you know, um, Billy Pratt, his twit, he's a, he's a great poster as well. He's a great, he's great on Twitter. Uh, catch him pretty much reposting any and all, uh, horrific or clown world (laughs) type news items with the simple caption, welcome to hell often followed by a link to where you can buy his book, which is uh, just about the greatest, uh, marketing scheme, uh, but meaningful marketing scheme, uh. For a book uh, that
1: I've seen, and we would be remiss if we did not say that he has an excellent cover, which is a uh, a rendering of Casey Anthony, who is you know a uh, a lead starlet in Hell, and (laughs) uh, this was uh, drawn by none other than Matt Lawrence, who we did an episode of our first guest. And who has designed the, uh, the New Wright logo as right. well as the uh, Matt's book cover of Dragon Day and the well, all the Terror House book covers and the book covers of Delicious Tacos.
2: Yes, um, you know, the, the, the illustrator of this whole scene in so many important ways. And um, yeah, no, uh, definitely another shout out to Matt um, for being our first guest. We both enjoyed his book as well. Uh, I think we wanted to also just kind of highlight Terror House as a as a as a great publisher. Um, some other books I read from Terror House beyond well obviously I read my own book, but also Welcome to Hell as we mentioned, um, and Matt Lawrence's book, Bronin. Um another, you know, another great few books I read this year were Andy Newicki, uh the original quote unquote alt right novelist, um, republished a lot of his books. Uh, with Terror House so those are definitely also uh, you know up there for me in terms of of what I read in 2021 Yeah. Um, and yeah you should definitely if you haven't already check out uh, Terror House Press Um, some great titles including my own which I think we'll talk about in a bit
1: (laughs) absolutely Terror House uh, and we had Matt Forney on the pod check out that episode he is the publisher of Terror House Press and uh, yeah friend of the pod Next sure. up is a novel that very well could have been published by Terror House Press, but it was published independently by <laughs> All Town, John, which yeah. is a satire, and um, this, uh, it's you know, it's interesting, Matt, you, uh, you crashed in my place a couple of weeks ago over Thanksgiving, and uh, I had this book lying around. I had not read it yet. I just read that it was a kind of, like, uh, frog Twitter satire. I thought, well, that's up my alley. And, um, yeah, so you, you had been reading it, and you showed me a paragraph. And, um, you know, you said, just just read this. You'll like it. And the paragraph was going, like, John, who is the protagonist, thought about writing a book, but he realized books were gay, and he thought about writing, painting a picture, and he realized that, you know, that was stupid, and then he realized that the best thing that he could do would be uh, to do uh, the most brilliant thing of all, which is to start a podcast, and yes. uh, that was, you know, very much up our alley. <laughs>
2: It uh yeah, no, um what you say is true. I was I was crashing at your house a few weeks ago and I you know, I it's it's not the longest novel ever, so I was like, I'll I'll read as much of this as I can before I leave. I didn't get to actually that far because we were kind of busy. But I got to that key paragraph, uh, where it's like the I don't know if you call it the inciting incident, but the moment where the protagonist, John that moment where his life is irrevocably altered, and it's when he decides to start a podcast, um, which of course is—it's a little bit satirical. It's a little bit of that wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing I mentioned earlier in the show, where there's a certain resistance sometimes to start podcasts because it feels like it's something that every John Doe is doing. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not discouraged by that satire. Obviously, it's hilarious. Um, and yeah, I haven't finished the book. I got to that paragraph. I showed it to you and I don't know how it ends. Um, I know you did read the rest of it, Dan. I don't know how much more you want to get into about it, but basically from what I've read, it seems like a hilarious book.
1: It is a hilarious book. It, he really, um, town has, uh, he has down the, uh, uh iron, the kind of dramatic irony of Writing something that you know as the author sounds stupid, and or dialogue or whatever, and that you know the reader will identify as stupid, but that the characters are taking at face value. Right. And that is, it's something that is a literary technique, and I've used it a lot in uh, Nutcranker, my own novel. And uh, it's mm-hmm. something that, in my opinion, when you, you come across lines like that, they're the ones that I laugh out loud at the most. For sure.
2: No, I. that was another reason I told you, like, the paragraph, um, and we'll get more of this in a moment, uh, is because it reminded me of your book, of Nutcranker, because of that kind of dramatic irony. Last thing I'll say about uh, what I've read of John by Paul Town is that, yeah, I think I even said this to you, because I, I probably read the, the, there's that first bit that I read, I probably read in two sittings, and the first one, I'm like, yeah, like, I don't. I don't quite get the tone of this yet. Like, uh, I, you know, I felt. It felt. I wasn't sure how sincere it was. You know, obviously the character's name was John Doe, so I knew there was something satirical going on. But like, in a lot of ways, uh, Paul Town is just describing a pretty relatable everyman, and I, you know, I almost found it like more. It felt almost more sincere than I was expecting. But then I got to that point, and it, it was kind of just from a literary mechanics point of view. I got to that paragraph where. It says, he would start a podcast, and it's like this kind of vaguely uh, ironic <laughs> thing, and immediately I got you know, to what this novel had been leading up to, and I'm excited to read the rest of it.
1: It uh, quite literally uh, takes off from there, because I don't think it will spoil it for the, uh, the readers that uh, his podcast is uh, quite successful. <laughs> and uh, so so successful it uh, is unbelievably so and so as a reader someone who maybe is in this corner of the internet thinking about podcasts him or herself well the, the idea that you would record a podcast and then get paid $10,000 by Chuck Palahniuk to fly out to LA after your first episode to do a podcast with him that's pretty fantastical but uh, that, oh, is man, just one, what happens. that is right. just one of the things that happens to our, uh, our man, John Doe. It sounds like
2: a wonderful fantasy novel to inspire my own fantasies.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, like, if it weren't for the fact it's a complete satire, I'd feel uh, a little shitty reading it myself. No. <laughs> Uh but that brings us to a novel that uh in some respects is satire and uh it's a good thing it is because there are some uh, some things that you certainly wouldn't want to happen to you. And uh that is a novel by you, Matt, Dragon <laughs> Yep,
2: to put my own book on the list, or maybe maybe it was you who put it on the list, Dan, uh but we're gonna talk about it briefly in any case. My, so
1: Dragon Day is, and I think this uh, distinguishes it from a lot of other uh, literary works in our sphere. Matt, you know, he sat down and wrote a proper novel. <laughs> this has real characters. <laughs> this has character development. None of them are Matt, as far as I can tell. I, you know, I certainly not. hope that <laughs> they're <laughs> not bad. <that. laughs> uh, uh, so Matt wrote a novel about a uh, kind of incel loner type who goes to a, a school that is uh, kind of uh, Ivy League or, you know, very you know, fancy very liberal like arts no, you, yeah. type college set in 2016 in the ferment and fervor of the, uh, the Trump election or the first Trump election. Mm-hmm. And, Actually,
2: um, uh, I'm going to be pretentious and cut you off right before. Cause I didn't, I purposely didn't want to write about Trump and about that being in the background. So I, I purposely said it in 2015, right before, um,
1: Okay, yeah.
2: Yeah. No, I, I didn't mean that as an actually, factually kind of thing. I meant it more just to, uh, you know. No, no, the conversation. Yeah. But it is it is right before that moment. But nevertheless, it's, I, I can see why you'd say 2016, because it it was meant to capitalize on that moment sort of right before.
1: Uh, yeah, the, the just, social the change that yeah. was afoot. And so this, uh, this main character, Toby, he, uh, you know, finds himself uh, to be a bit of an outcast. And it uh, doesn't really fit into the, the frat and whatever culture, but uh, he makes a friend in the gym who uh, is, <laughs> uh, he runs into someone named uh, Professor Wallingford, who is, um, well, modeled on you know probably a number of uh, kind of uh, notorious characters from our side of the internet. I, I don't know how much more you want me to suggest or imply
2: oh yeah no um just just basically that uh, professor wallingford the sort of villain or antagonist of the novel uh is an ostensibly uh, young and handsome uh, ostensibly leftist professor who is kind of an esoteric uh fascist of sorts uh who has a sort of secret teaching uh that he teaches to an inner ring of disciples uh in which he inducts our protagonist uh, the best uh my favorite or actually a lot of people have said a lot of nice things but one of my favorite one of the very early things someone said about it, it was my uh, i don't know him super well so I, guess I can't just be like my friend but you know one of one of my my online buddies um who is, is a long-term um proponent of dissident literature and the alternative literature scene ben arzate Uh, When I sent him my manuscript, said it reminded him of uh, *The Secret History* by Donna Tartt, as if it was written by Michelle Welbeck. Um, (laughs) I like to think of it that way myself. I did, you know, years ago now because I was working on the novel for a matter of years. Uh, But I did read *The Secret History*, which which is a great novel um, from that '80s '90s period uh, about. uh, It's sometimes it's actually a meme now, by the way. I was learning about the other other week this thing called, like, dark academia or something. It's like a TikTok trend. But anyway, it's like this whole aesthetic of, like, people who are super academic or whatever and, and The Secret History, you know, kind of encapsulates that um, that milieu and I think to an extent my novel does. And, and it's slightly different, you know, 2015 set way. That sort of, you know, you know gothic library steps uh, type of imagery and the notion of a just a, a professor with a massive ego and an inner ring of disciples, but uh, that's the setting. Um, secret history, esque some of the plot. A little secret history, esque it gets a little violent as the secret history does. But I, uh, I like so many, so many other writers um, on this list of our top ten. Um, I'm also really influenced by Michelle Welbeck, and I'm interested in the theme of atomization and the decline of the West and uh, that those themes are very uh, prevalent in, in Dragon Day as well. Uh, what, yeah. what
1: I will say, to put maybe a button on it, is um, I think your novel, Matt, is a really kind of perfect blend of thriller and satire, and it's like it had me turning the pages. I wanted to know, uh, you know, is our protagonist, Toby, going to escape the clutches of Wallingford? But... As I'm reading, there are aspects that just you know made me laugh out loud, like the, the first few pages where uh, Toby is bemoaning his, uh, his lack of manhood in a very uh, anatomically <laughs> obvious way. Um, yeah, no, there's just um, it's an, an excellent um, combination of uh, a plot driven page Turner and some uh, some really good comedic writing. So well, thank about. you.
2: Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned those first few. So you mentioned those first few pages in the book where Toby is bemoaning the size of his penis, um, which was sort of the original kernel that I started writing about. Um, you know, years ago. I my whole I guess process as a writer and in projects I'm working on now even is I my my goal is always and I I would like to think you know people like Welbeck are, are similar in their ways to find these just really extreme and weird uh, emotions uh, that one may come across in their lives. things that are sources of shame or embarrassment. And uh, for better or worse, uh, my goal is to always lean as far as possible into those, perhaps exaggerate them. And, um, you know, just different notions of, of male shame and male feelings of inadequacy... Um, were were sort of the initial spark for Dragon Day that I turned into a thriller plot. So I think that probably kind of is why uh, I'm. Thank you for saying so. That it's a balance between uh, satire and thriller is because, yeah, inevitably, you know, I, tr- I I I never set out. I don't really consider myself a comedic writer, but I've been told that some of my writing is funny. And I think it's because I'm just again, as we do on this podcast, the writing we, we talk about, always just looking to hone in on that truth because often the truth is the funniest thing. Um, that's and, right. And you know, you do have to exaggerate it a bit, and I think that's kind of where the thriller plot line comes in. Um, but on that note, I will also, uh, Dan, add your book to this little top ten list, which is.
1: Thank you, man. Maybe
2: it's kind of silly because the book is not out. It's God willing, it's going to be out next year. Um, But I read it. It's a great thing that I read in 2021. It's Nutcranker by Dan Baltic. Um, Another novel like mine with real characters, uh, you know, a real novel, so to speak, uh, and a real satire. Um, Dan, you said that the Confederacy of Dunces uh, was a major inspiration and that...
1: So I would call it a modern day Confederacy of Dunces... Like, where would Ignatius J. Riley, who's the main character of Confederacy of Dunces, who would he be today? He would be an incel uh, edgelord, you know, living in Brooklyn, you know, walking around uh, doing, you know, crazy shit. And that is, uh, in some respects, a very reductive uh, description of Nutcranker, Cranker. But uh yeah, no, it whets
2: the appetite. And you know, you've said this on past episodes, and we've actually had people like reach out to us over Twitter and say like, oh, that sounds great, um, you know, which which bodes well for how well the book uh, will do. Uh, yeah. publishers out there. It bodes well for how well the book will do when it is released. Um, Listen in it guys appetite, <laughs> uh, for this kind of thing. And um, yeah, no, not Crankers excellent as we as we mentioned earlier, it's kind of that similar tone to John by Paul town, where it's a certain, Dramatic irony where the narrator says stuff that he doesn't realize, you know, the delusions and the stupidity inherited to it. But the the reader obviously does realize, Um, I think, similar to Dragon Day, uh, it is a little bit of an exploration of that male sense of inadequacy, um, which uh, as well as um, just, you know, generally living in an atomized society. Um, and in that regard it's very much in my wheelhouse and I think probably very much in the wheelhouse of everyone listening Um, and explores that stuff effectively it's got a twist ending I will also say so uh, look out for that
1: so just as a uh, recapitulation of the plot it uh, follows around a uh, man who uh, in his late 20s he gets fired from his NGO job because they discover he has a, uh, a Menchus mold Moldbug-style blog, and uh, that you know doesn't really fly with them. So he gets fired in spectacular fashion. He bounces around, but he manages to uh, preserve his sanity by seizing upon a uh, a new project, and that project is to. Um, Transform the girl that he starts dating, who he meets through a BDSM website, into a, uh, a literal uh, slave trad girl for him. And uh, you know he he sets about this, and um, you know he's facing significant headwinds because he uh, he thinks that you know he's going to prevail. But uh, he, uh, you know, perhaps is being subverted by her and her uh, her leftist friends, and <laughs> um, he uh, he runs into some trouble there. And when that um, you know inevitably unravels, he uh, he goes a bit off the rails. Matt. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. So it has that same. Story, Paul, Paul, I call it the Paul Schrader narrative. Uh, you know where it's about you know tight focus on a, a sort of male psychology um sexually repressed in certain regards perhaps or sexually underserved in certain regards uh and you know ends in a sort of explosive orgasm of violence or or is it you know you have to you have to read it to you'll see have to see how explosive it is um, and uh,
1: just uh, for everyone's uh, edification, Nutcranker sounds like a crazy title, but uh, it is, in fact, the name of his favorite pornography aggregation platform, Nutcranker. You, you yes. log on to uh, you know watch porn and get your, your nuts cranked.
2: Exactly. <laughs> um, no, and that brings up another good point also to the point where, in many ways, I do think the novel is is about, yeah. You know, one, one major theme at least is BDSM and the the notion of using that to, uh, I guess, right-wing ends, um, which is hilarious. Um, based that kind BDSM. Of, exactly.
1: Based decide. Based, uh, based
2: exa- oh, precisely. And, I mean, that's also a theme in, in Dragon Day is uh, a, a look. Um, it's also a major theme in the last second edition I'm about to pitch. But the, the sort of ironic connection between certain paraphilias and certain fetishes and certain just really, frankly, degenerate stuff uh, with the general, uh, e- even though it's degenerate, uh, it kind of takes a sort of red pilling, we might even say, look at power dynamics uh, in the same way that a lot of the political stuff we explore uh does um so if that if that kind of thing if, if you like my book i think you'll like nutcranker if if, if, the, if, if you can see the humor in, in that sort of notion um then nutcranker uh, and my book both uh, i think are very much for you
1: and i will make the bold prediction or proclamation now that Nutcranker will be published in 2022.
2: You know what, Dan? I think it will because either either someone's going to rise to the occasion, or uh, I'm just going to
1: publish it. it yeah, if because... I have to it's, exactly. it's not that hard. You know, Paul Town did it. You know, it looks pretty good. I, I can't imagine he's a millionaire, and uh, you know, I have some money, so we'll uh, yeah. we'll get this thing out there, and your nuts will be cranked. <laughs>
2: Right, and um, I'll, I'll use that to transition to my... It's not even... I don't even consider this an honorable mention. It's just that I literally didn't know this book was... I wasn't sure if this book was going to come out until in 2021 until this past week. When it did come out, which is my good friend Robert Stark's novel, Fornia*, The sequel to his Frog Twitter 2017 classic, Journey to Vapor Island. Um, Gosh, I, I just published on my Substack... Um, a review of the book um, And I You know I don't want to drag the show on forever So I will direct your attention there um, It's definitely one of the better I think it's one of the better nonfiction things I've ever written I the, Robert's novel um, I think it's one of the funniest novels of the year Not counting Nutcranker Because Nutcranker isn't technically out yet um, It's in Very grand in scope Um, you know, Robert Stark is a California native, uh, you may catch him blogging about that on Substack. This is a somewhat cartoonish, but very hilarious novel, uh, which explores the sort of sexual and economic undercurrents, uh, of the state of California. Um, I could say more, but I will, um, I'll link to, link to my Substack, um, Vapor Fornia by Robert Stark just came out, uh, self-published. Um, yeah, again, I'll, I'll link to it. Uh, it's it's very much uh, a book that I a book that I had a, a large hand in helping edit and produce, so to speak. Um, and it is very much a book worth having on the radar.
1: I'm excited to read it and excited to have Robert on the pod. He uh, right. he is an upcoming guest on York. He Red.
2: is. We we will have him on top of next year.
1: And uh, I think that brings us to the end of the list, Matt.
2: I think so. Um, Here's to a excellent 2022.
1: Only good things. Only more things. Only right things. (laughs) Over and out.
2: Signing off.